0: I'm going to ask you the question, what is God like? Tell the person next to you. How are you guys finding? Is it semi-easy or is it a semi-difficult question? Often when I've been asked that question, I'm kind of like, ah, uh, yeah, he's, he's good. He's good. And then when I ask, one of the things I love to do is I love to ask the people the question back, well, what do you think God is like? And uh, I don't know about you, but I just want to run three kind of scenarios, and maybe this kind of resonates with you, of what some of the most common things I hear people say. So if I ask someone else, well, like, I don't know, what do you think God is like? Uh, One of the main things that I get often is, uh, he's a mean old man in the sky ready to zap you if you do something wrong. Anyone Anyone else ever hear that from people or feel like people have that perception? Particularly those, again, I grew up in Mexico, which is a lot of Catholic backgrounds. A lot of my Catholic friends had that kind of idea growing up, that God was this kind of big guy up in the sky who had basically this ruler that he was looking at every single person and measuring up every single person with. And if you did something wrong, it was like God couldn't wait to just like zap you and call it good. Like, ha ha, you're a sinner. So it's time to go burn. Like That was like the immediate response God always wanted to do. Another one that I picked up when I was in England when I'd ask people what God is like is I'd get like the hippie New Age answer. You ever get this one? What do you think God is like? Oh, I think God is just this uh, energy of love that it flows through the universe and it flows through each and every one of us. And if we can just be awakened to the love of God, you know, and all of us can realize the love of God within us, then we will be able to share the love of God and so God is really the spiritual force of love. Anyone else ever ever heard that one? Or another common one that I've often heard is uh, if you ask someone what God is like, they'd be like, "Ah, oh, this was real big uh, a little while ago. is They had this idea that, yeah, God maybe kind of set some things up, and I'm sure everything had to come from something at some point maybe. So maybe God just made things, but then he hasn't really done anything about it since. Like I know he said he did some things in the past. But basically, God set the world up. And now the world's just going to kind of run on its own thing. And if we just are good enough, then maybe we'll get to heaven one day because we're not as bad as our neighbor who's a jerk. So if we're better than him, then we're doing pretty good. And so this idea of this really far-off, detached God who doesn't really integrate much with humanity or do much with the world, he just kind of does his own thing, being all godlike in God space. And these are kind of three really common scenarios when you ask and push people, what do you think God is like? You get all kinds of answers. And so tonight we're going to focus in on this question of what is God like? Now, traditionally, Christians have used a word like this to describe what God means. Now, incarnation is quite a big fancy word. It's this doctrine, it's the belief of the church that says when Jesus was born, he was God as a human person. So God came as a human, and that person was Jesus. So when Jesus, we look at him, we can say that Jesus is God. That's kind of the the main idea of the incarnation. And so often, that's the big message of Christmas that we hear, right? It's God coming to earth as Jesus to save us from our sins. That's like hopefully what we would say Christmas is about. And it's cool, but we often hear this so often and we think, yep, God became a man, 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 that it's like really common. And we don't even actually think about it because we're like, well, of course God became a man because... That's what happens every year, and we just tell ourselves that story. And because we get so familiar with it, we miss kind of the huge significance of this one word, the incarnation of God, God becoming one of us. The writers, when they picked up on it, John, when he's describing the opening of his gospel, talking about Jesus, said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. And he has made him known. So there's this idea that God is a man and that man is Jesus and that man, Jesus is also God. But as comfortable as you and I are with it, even the gospel writers and even the ancient Hebrews who were waiting for this godlike figure to come weren't quite ready for it. They had this term called the Messiah, which again, nowadays, if you look at that up in the dictionary, Messiah has this connotation of a person of divinity, right? A divine human, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, but originally, the Messiah didn't have those kind of divine, godlike connotations. Actually, in fact, a lot of people don't realize this, but the idea of a Messiah throughout the Bible actually developed. So although there are hints of it as we go back and read the scriptures, we can find hints of the Messiah everywhere. But in like common thought of people back in the day, a lot of them wouldn't actually have been expecting a Messiah, particularly like during David's time. You know, we've been doing on our Sunday mornings, and have been doing a series throughout the life of David. During David's time, there wouldn't really have been a Messiah-like figure they were all waiting for. And why would they? Because David was the man. And while David was there, life was pretty good. Their kingdom was expanding. And then once Solomon took over, the kingdom got bigger than it had ever gotten. So during this whole time, they never really had to want a Messiah or need a Messiah because they had a good king. And, you know, God had promised to be with them, and he was because their nation was thriving. But what had happened was, it was after Solomon, Israel got a whole bunch of terrible kings. There are a few good ones, but most of them were terrible and did all the terrible things you shouldn't do. And progressively over time, the kingdom went from being huge under Solomon to getting smaller and smaller. There was a civil war, and the north broke off from the south, and those nations got smaller and smaller as the other nations around it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And what happened eventually was these huge enemy forces got so big that they kind of swept through and eliminated the entire northern kingdom of Israel. They all got taken into captivity, and then all that remained was the southern kingdom. And as this is begin to happen, you begin to see throughout the prophets in Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel the beginnings of a hope for a Messiah to begin to develop. Because during David, everything was fine. But as those things were falling apart, you begin to see more and more writings about this Messiah that they're looking forward to. And then it got even worse when another enemy force, the Babylonians, came through and completely demolished the southern kingdom and the southern kingdom was gone. Most of them were all taken into exile, living in Babylon, far away from everything they'd ever known. And so they had these promises on the one hand of God who said, I'll always be with you, I'm gonna make a covenant with you as Israel, I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people and you're gonna prosper. But then they had this reality of them being this tiny, scattered nation, living in a foreign land with no political kingdom, no homeland, nothing, nothing to hold on to. And so these promises that they had were now gone and now more and more and more you see these writings develop and these talkings of a coming Messiah. Someone who would come, an anointed one. Messiah literally means an anointed one. They were looking for someone who would deliver them. But And we, we think deliver, and we think, well, deliver them from their sins because obviously that's what we think. But for them, it wasn't so much delivery from sin. It was literally deliverance from their political oppressors who had slaughtered them and taken them off into a foreign nation. So they had this idea of a Messiah But it wasn't this divine, godlike figure that would rescue them from their sins. It was this idea of a political leader, an anointed warrior who would restore the nation of Israel and bring this nationhood, this people who've lost everything, back into power. So when there's all these talks and these writings and we hear about the coming of Jesus and this coming of the Messiah, that's the picture they have in their head. Not someone divine, but a human that God would raise up to deliver them from Rome or from Babylon or for the Greeks or whatever kingdom was oppressing them at the time. So when Jesus gets up to the stage and begins to not fit that Messiah mold and does something a whole lot weirder, you can understand why people got really nervous. When Jesus, instead of saying, hey, yep, I'm a political leader, don't worry, the nation of Israel is going to rise again and we'll kick out these nasty Romans and you'll have everything you ever wanted. Instead, he starts saying things like, you need to eat my body, and drink my blood, and I am God. Can you understand how awkward that would have been? Let me put it in different terms. Imagine, so we're here in Bethlehem, right? Imagine that you hear of this guy who's working in churches, and you hear it, and his name is, um, what's his name? His name is Dave, okay? Imagine there's this guy named Dave, and he's from Ochohana, okay? And uh, you don't really hear much of him at the beginning, other than you hear that he's, working in a church there, and uh, he's starting to gather a few followers, and he's beginning to make some waves out in the regions. And you're like, oh, that's, I mean, good for Dave. Good on you, Dave from Ocho And then Dave starts traveling, and he starts going over to other cities in New Zealand, beginning to preach and talk in churches and begin to open up the Bible and begin to communicate, and he gets more and more waves, more and more publicity, and everybody knows about Dave. And uh, you begin to meet some people who went to some of Dave's meetings. And it was really mixed, the reactions you got. Some people went to Dave's meetings and they got healed. And so they were blind and they came back seeing and they came back saying like, there's this amazing teaching David is doing. He's saying, love your neighbor as yourself, love God and love the one across from you. It's amazing, he's, he's the best thing that's ever happened. But then you meet another friend who's gone to go see David Ochohunga and this guy's like, Dave is a nut job. Dave is nuts, we're like, what do you mean? Well, Dave opened up the scriptures and he was telling people, look, you need to eat my flesh. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know how to communicate it other than he, after giving people food, he said, you need to eat me to have life and life forever. Gosh, Dave's sounding a little awkward. And so finally, Dave gets this huge following and everybody's following him and everybody's divided. Some thinking Dave is awesome and some thinking Dave is this crazy cult leader that's gonna go lead everyone to like mass suicide in a forest somewhere. And so Dave finally comes through here to Toranga, and you finally get all of the leaders of the churches. Craig is there, he's here to listen and talk with Dave. You know, the Anglican leaders are there. All the bigwigs have come to talk to Dave. And as Dave preaches this sermon, Dave begins to talk about, you know, how he has the true revelation of God, and actually no one else has really known God except for Dave. And if you really loved God, then you'd love Dave, and if you don't love Dave, then you probably don't love God. And so, you know, the church leaders are understandably a little nervous about Dave, and so they begin to push him with some questions. Well, what about this scripture, and what about this scripture? And Dave kind of answers back in a half answer, and someone else says this, and they keep pushing, and so they're finally like, Dave... But You're trying to put yourself as above Jesus. And then Dave says, before Jesus existed, I am. How awkward would you feel? How weird would it be to have somebody who's literally claiming to be divine from your nation in your hometown walking in front of you saying that I speak for God? And it was that same exact scenario with these Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the people who are following Jesus often we come down really hard on the Pharisees but if I'm honest I probably would have been one of them because I'm not the likely person who's gonna think that person is probably God so it left the Pharisees and it left everyone in this really awkward situation with Jesus either Jesus is nuts or everything has to change see for the Pharisees either they could write Jesus off as a blasphemer or a crazy person and execute him and just get him done because he's actually a risk to the nation of Israel because he's probably going to incite some sort of rebellion that's going to cause Rome to come down heavy on them and actually get rid of all the good things that they've been able to work for. Or, he's actually God. And if he's actually God, then everything has to change. Everything they've taught about the temples and about who God is and about God being so distant that you couldn't even speak his name, God being so holy that you couldn't even stand in his presence now Dave standing right in front of them, if he was God, then you have to revamp everything. And that's why you see throughout the whole of the gospels, this huge fraction of some people who are ready to say that, yep, he's God, and I'm going to reorientate my whole life around him. Or you had people saying, nope, he's a nut job or a blasphemer, just trying to take power, and we need to get rid of him. And so these Pharisees and the people back then had to ask the question, the truth is, If Jesus was God, it doesn't just affect them, and it doesn't affect them, but it also affects you and me and everyone on earth today, if he was actually God. There's a common parable. Again, when I was working in the UK, I ended up having conversations about faith with a lot of different people, and there's this parable that people always hit me with that they always thought was really good, and it was this uh, this parable of there are these three blind men, and... uh, they're told there's this elephant in a room, and the three blind men are told to go investigate the elephant, and report on what they've found. So the first blind man goes up to the elephant, and he comes up to its its uh, its belly, and as he feels it, he says, "The elephant, the elephant is a wall. It's a big wall." The next blind man comes up to the elephant, and he finds one of the ears, and he feels the ear, and he says, "The elephant is like a giant fan that you can wave." Another blind man comes up to the elephant, and he feels the trunk. And he says, no, the elephant is a steel pipe. And the moral of the story is that the person comes and says to the three blind men, you were all right, but you only saw in part. The elephant is all of those things and more. And people love to use that illustration about God. With all the religions and all of us, we all just see in part. And so God is probably just a mix and a a hodgepodge of everything, right? It's a little bit of Hinduism, and it's probably a little bit of Christianity, and it's probably a little bit of Buddhism. And if we just shove it all together, God is probably just some good benevolent force that helps us to reach our dreams and be nice to each other. The problem with that metaphor, and the problem with that everything happens, is that the elephant speaks. In their phrase, it's just these three blind men that are trying to reach out to this elephant and get a feel and assume from their own knowledge what that elephant is maybe like. But this is what's so different about the incarnation. This is what's so different about Jesus coming to earth is that God isn't this some distant person that none of us can really touch or grab or feel or God doesn't get to become the creation of our own minds, just a hodgepodge of all of our favorite things and shoved into some benevolent divi- divinity in our minds. God himself has spoken. God has said, this is who I am. And who I am is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. See, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he'd provided purification for sins, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The sun is the exact representation of his being. Now, it's this thing that we say all the time, Jesus is God, but if Jesus is really God, then there is no other God than the one shown in Jesus Christ. Let me put it in a different way. Often for us as Christians, we think about God in different ways. If we sin, what's a really common thing we want to do? You want to hide it, right? You want to cover it up because you think God might not love us anymore, or maybe we've done too much, and We've gone beyond the line, and God isn't going to want to be there for us anymore. Maybe God is so holy, he can't stand the sight of our sin. God is so far removed from everything, he can no longer stand to interact with me or you, a dirty human. But that's not the God who's revealed in Jesus. If we want to ask, how does God feel about sin? We look at Jesus. And what does Jesus show us? Is that why the whole world was far away from him. While no one was ready to draw close to him, while everyone was still stuck in their sins, while everyone was stuck in their own brokenness, God descended into our filth. God descended into our world and became one of us, opened up his arms so that he could save us, lift us up out from our sin. So we can no longer think of God as this mean, distant, angry God because Jesus shows he's someone so much different. There is no other God than the God revealed in Jesus. What about if we want to think about God as just some vague form of love, some vague form of spirituality that helps us awaken to our own power? Well, that doesn't make sense more because God has a face, God has a name, God has someone we can feel and touch and relate with. And when Jesus came, he redefined what love is. Love is opening up your arms and embracing the other, but not leaving the other as they are. We can't say God just wants us all to realize our own self-worth when Jesus' very presence reminds us that we are so far from who God created us to be. But instead, we know that love is God who brings us out of where we are and reforms us into the image that he creates for us. We can't think of God as being detached It's really easy to think of God being far away or when we're stuck in our own situations or our own brokenness, our own difficulty, it's so easy to think, oh, God is probably not going to do anything. I mean, God doesn't really do much, right? He just does the occasional miracle in Africa. um, But he won't really make much of a difference now because God doesn't really do that thing. That's not the God revealed in Jesus. The God revealed in Jesus is so incredibly active into our world that he literally became one of us. And he set the world in a change that from which it'll never come back from. By becoming man and dying on the cross for each of us, he brought about a reconciliation for the whole world. Which means if God was active in Jesus, he is still active now. Because God has not chosen to be some far distant God. God has chosen to be the God with us. And we know that he's the God with us because of Jesus. One of the coolest things that I love about the Incarnation, and this is one of my favorite things, is that God has so chosen to be with us. When he took humanity upon himself, when he became a human, he became a human forever. When Jesus went up into heaven, he didn't like shed his skin. He didn't just evaporate into some sort of ether. Jesus, the man, the human, is still sitting at the right hand of the Father. So now humanity still exists within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is how much God has chosen to be with us. That is how much God loves us. He would never choose to be away from us. He's brought us into his life forever. And he's constantly working to enter into that life, enter into his love, enter into his plans. And that's the beauty of this Christmas message. When God became a man, God revealed who he was. And we can no longer think of God in any other terms other than the God revealed in Jesus. And that's why it's such good news because Jesus reveals a good, loving, and wonderful God, far above whatever we could hope or imagine. It reveals God's faithfulness to us even when we are not faithful to him, and it reveals his love to always be with us. Even if we try and push him away, he is always with us, God with us, Emmanuel, the name of Jesus. So at Christmas, the whole point is let's get to know him. If there is no other God but the God revealed in Jesus, then our whole life needs to then revolve around getting to know what this person is like, getting to know what this God is like. It's one of my favorite things about the way we structure the year. Ever wonder why we have kind of Christmas and then We have Easter and we've got all some kind of, uh, traditionally we have different things that happen in between. It was the church's attempt to hopefully retell time around this Christmas story so that every year you would come into the new year remembering what God has done by becoming one of us. And every year we would start our life out by centering ourselves around that message and then we would journey through the life of Jesus, through his life, through his death and resurrection at Easter through the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and we can journey through him year after year as time revolves around his story. I think it's amazing. If I can invite the team to come back up, we're just going to close. As we go into Christmas, and as we go into this new year, could I remind you there is no other God but the God revealed in Jesus. And maybe, not maybe, for each and every one of us, We need to do work to re-get to know Jesus every year so that we can take apart this weird construct of some abstract God that we've put in our heads and instead replace it with the God revealed in Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who is always for us and the God who is always with us. Let's pray. God, it's a scandal that we don't ever quite fully understand that you would descend and become one of us. Everything that we are often seems so dirty or so, so broken and we think, God, you're too holy or you're too, you're too good to get stuck with stuff like us. But Lord, we rejoice at Christmas because we know that you have chosen to be with us now and forever because you became one of us. And now, as one of us, Jesus, you sit at the right hand of the Father, calling us forward, sending your Spirit to lift us up into your presence, into your life, into your light. God would you help us to maybe pull apart some of the images or some of the ideas of you that are just wrong if we think that you're too distant to care about us, if we think that you're too holy to deal with someone like us, if we think that you're just too vague to even know us or too impersonal to come close to us. God, would you tear that apart? And would you just fill our minds and our eyes with the vision of Jesus, this person who knows us intimately, who walked as we walked, who lived as we lived, who struggled as we struggled, and who now calls us forward, who calls us home, your loving embrace. Fill us with that image of Jesus and that image of you, the God who has chosen to forever be with us. We worship you this Christmas. Because of what you've done, we all have life in a way we never knew or expected. And because of you and what you've done, this whole world is being transformed. Everything, every nation, every people, every place, every part of creation is being transformed into this beautiful image that you have for it. And you call us to be a part of that. God, it is an honor and a privilege to walk this journey with you. Would you carry us every step of the way? Amen. Amen.